Okay, let's go on to Dr. Garrido's case. Okay, my patient is a 70-year-old woman, long-time smoker, approximately 60-pack year history of smoking, who presented with what she perceived as a worsening shortness of breath and cough for approximately three months. Her performance status was zero to one, and no significant weight loss. She had a chest X-ray and then a chest CT that showed a right upper lobe lesion, three centimeters, and a hilar mass of approximately 4.5 centimeters had a CT-guided biopsy of the right upper lobe nodule that was compatible with non-small cell lung cancer, as much as we can tell, or the pathologist could tell, was a non-squamous cell type. On her physical exam, she had a very pathologically enlarged left inguinal lymph node and had a PET CT scan that showed exactly what I just said, the nodule, the hilar mass, and the inguinal lymph node. I sent her for a fine needle expedition of the lifting with a lymph node, and actually her surgeon almost took out the whole thing, and it was compatible with metastatic disease, non-small cell lung cancer. She had a brain MRI that showed no evidence of disease. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself, what her family situation was? Her husband had passed away before from prostate cancer. She had two children. They were very involved at the beginning, but all of a the sudden they've basically disappeared from the picture. They don't come anymore. She's doing great, but they are not coming anymore to appointments. They are not calling anymore. Very normal, you know, housewife type of person, very scared, anxious, but willing to proceed with whatever recommendation we had for her not the kind of person that will go in the internet and look for answers, more the type of person that said, you know, tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. How long ago did your husband die of prostate cancer? Approximately five, six years ago. He went through androgen blockage and the usual stuff. He never got chemotherapy, but I do not know the details of his. So Tony, how would you be thinking through treatment in this situation? Well, she has stage 4 disease, relatively good shape overall, no contraindications to adding bevacizumab or Avastin to chemotherapy. And that's off study. That's what I would do. Even on study, we have studies with Avastin. And I've gotten to the point where I like to use less toxic chemotherapies off study that look to be just as effective at advanced disease. And there are several of these. And one of my favorites right now, this could change, is gemcitabine and carboplatinum. And I would treat her with gemcitabine and carboplatinum with Avastin, at least initially. What dose? And maybe you can comment on the AVAIL study that was presented at ASCA. Yes. I would use gemcitabine a gram per meter squared on day one and eight, and carboplatinum and AUC of five on day one, Avastin 15 milligrams per kilogram, day one every 21 days when the cycle's repeated. I would probably use or consider after the first course or two whether Nulasta should be given. The AVAIL study was, of course, gemcitabine and cisplatinum. Its primary endpoint was progression-free survival rather than survival. It actually included two additional arms with Avastin at half the dose, 7.5 milligrams per kilogram, or the full dose, 15 milligram per kilogram, given every three weeks with the gemcitabine cisplatinum. And that study was interesting. It was a positive trial favoring either of the Avastin arms and complements the ECOG trial, which had a survival endpoint, in that there was a significant improvement in survival. It's not quite fair to say the lower dose is just as good because the study wasn't designed and powered to look at that. But in fact, when you do look at that, it was. 
So the lower dose was just as effective in terms of progression-free survival improvement as the higher dose of Avastin. Tom, you actually did the discussion on this paper at ASCA. Can you summarize what your thoughts are, particularly about the issue of dose? But the other thing that they got into is which agents can you combine with bevacizumab and where we are with that? I agree with Tony. I think that the AVAIL study was a positive study. I think it suggested that you could combine gemcitabine as well as ataxane with bevacizumab. And I think that the recommendation for carbogemcitabine or carbotaxol, I think, are reasonable recommendations. So I think that the benefit of Avastin will be seen with all the regimens we use in lung cancer. I think we need some safety data for some of the regimens. I haven't seen a carboalimpta Avastin trial yet, although I'm sure that there's one that's been done. And I think that we want to see some safety data with some of these regimens, but I suspect we'll be able to use Avastin with all of these areas. The question of dose, I think, is an important question. My feeling is that I think Avail will eventually, when the survival data comes out, support the dose of 7.5 milligrams per kilogram. I think the good news from Avail is that both 7.5 and 15 are safe. So I think we can feel comfortable giving 15 until we have the survival data. But from looking at the trial very carefully, I'd be shocked if 7.5 does not come out as a better regimen in terms of equal efficacy, slightly less toxicity. And I think that this is the same kind of conundrum for those of you who do general oncology that you have in colorectal cancer. You've got one trial that says you should be using the equivalent of 2.5 milligrams per kilogram per week. Another trial that says you can use 5 milligrams per kilogram per week. And how do you weigh that? And I know that many of the oncologists I talk to, some use the higher dose, some use the lower. I don't think you're wrong for using 15. I'm still using 15 until the survival data comes out. But I strongly think the survival data is going to not show any advantage to 15 at this are we going to be able to detect, you know, a modest improvement that you might see with 15, a 20% improvement? No, you probably won't. But again, when you look at the overall evidence with this drug, I just have not been convinced that there's a dose response. If you look in colorectal cancer, some of the best data is with the equivalent of 7.5. Difficult thing when you talk about dose, obviously, is in colorectal cancer. You folks are using it every two weeks as opposed to every three. But I do think that dose becomes a reasonable research question. And I know that there are some studies being planned to look at the benefit that loading doses may have or that higher doses may have. Perfectly reasonable research question. But I think from a standard of care standpoint, we'll probably be able to get away with a slightly lower dose is my instinct once that data comes out. We should have that within about a year. What do we know about side effects and toxicity between the two doses of bevacizumab? They seem to be very comparable. There is more hypertension in patients who have the higher dose of bevacizumab than with the lower dose of bevacizumab. But the most important thing we worry about in lung cancer, as you all know, is hemoptysis and bleeding. And that rate seems pretty similar between the two arms of the trial. So what happened with this patient? One of the questions I had, she had a long history of smoking and COPD, but she was in pretty good shape. She's still in pretty good shape. Her metastatic disease was limited, and I sent her for evaluation by the radiation oncology people. And at the time she got to see them, she had already gone through one cycle of chemotherapy. And initially, what was left of the lymph node was gone after the first cycle of chemotherapy. I was very impressed. So they initially agreed to do radiation therapy. And by the time they get to simulate her, she had her PET CT after the second cycle. And she had a very impressive response to chemotherapy after the second chemotherapy. So between the family, the radiation oncologist, and I, we decided not to radiate her. I was in favor of doing it, but the radiation oncology people said you had a great response with systemic chemotherapy. You had, by definition, stage four disease, just go with the chemo. So she completed, actually, the six cycles of chemotherapy, and now she has gone through one 
quote-unquote maintenance oh, avasin. So I was going to do exactly what is considered the standard of care now until progressive disease, I guess. I'm not sure we know the data to maintain patients on Avastin as a maintenance at this moment, but that was what was presented in the stage so Tom, four disease. How do you approach this issue of continuation of bevacizumab after the chemo? So in both studies that are positive, both Alan Sandler's 4599 and in Avail, the maintenance strategy was employed. I use the maintenance strategy. I'm curious what people here think, but I found patients love maintenance of Aston. They love the idea that they're coming in, getting something which is keeping their tumor at bay, yet not making them feel miserable. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think there's an obligation to look at that and ask, are we doing anything? And there's some evidence in other diseases that's emerging that perhaps maintenance might make sense. There's a randomized trial that's being planned by the GOG in ovarian cancer to try to look at the question of maintenance of Aston. So perhaps we'll get some evidence from other tumor types as to the potential benefit of maintenance. If you believe that these drugs are working by anti-angiogenic mechanisms. One could argue in the setting of minimal residual disease that that's when you might have your best effect. Mm -hmm. So I tend to give maintenance. And how is she doing on the bevacizumab? Hypertension, any problems? None whatsoever. Her blood pressure has been fine, no proteinuria, has had no thromboembolic events. She's doing great. What's her state of mind? Oh, she's very happy to have done the chemotherapy. I started her on paclitaxel 200 milligrams per meter square and the standard carboplatin, and I had to reduce her dose of Taxol because of peripheral neuropathy. She's thankful that she's done with the chemo, and she's willing to continue. have done one every three-week Avastin, and she thought it was nothing in comparison to chemotherapy, obviously. Tony, any thoughts about the case and also this issue of maintenance, bevacizumab? Yeah. I agree with Tom on that issue. I think that she's another patient who I don't think you're wrong by considering radiation therapy even now with the oligometastasis. If she had diffuse known metastasis, I wouldn't even think about it. But, you know, she had just the lesion in the groin that you know about in the lung. Both can be irradiated now relatively easily. I, I would consider it in such a patient. I don't think it's a bad idea. We have no data. It's just my feeling about small numbers of METs and long-term mm-hmm. control of disease. Bob? Thank you. I'd like to ask Dr. Greco a question. I, too, like to use carboplatin gemcitabine, but I've been a little nervous about using that with Avastin yes. because of the thrombocytopenia that we don't always see but occasionally see. Yes. That issue's been brought up before. So I'm curious about your experience with that combination with Avastin? I think there is some issue with thrombocytopenia with that combination, and I'm anxious to move on to Olympton Carbo, which I think is going to be much better. But we don't have the data yet, and I'm not doing it yet in first line. But I think it's going to be there very, very soon. I'm not worried so much about it. I've used this combination now many, many times. We have a study where we can pick the chemotherapy with Avastin. I've picked and probably at least 15 patients of my own gem and carbo, and I've seen three or four of those develop platelet counts, maybe 40, 50,000. They usually recover, and you have to adjust doses of gemcitabine, sometimes even the carbo. I looked at those 15 because I had the same concern you had. I got 70 to 80% of the doses in of the cytotoxic drugs, and I'm satisfied with that. There's no data out there that people bleed more on Avastin that have moderate levels of thrombocytopenia anywhere. And usually I'm not talking about less than 10,000. You don't see that, do you? I mean, that would be very unusual. So... I'm not too concerned about that. Tom, what about anticoagulation? This was presented also at Avail. So two points from the anticoagulation. One is that Avail patients who had 
uh, need for a full dose anticoagulation before entry were not allowed onto avail. What we do know from avails are about 80 patients who required anticoagulation during the course of the study, and those patients did fine in terms of tolerating Avastin relatively well. So I think the good news is it now makes us feel more comfortable in using anticoagulation when we need it on our patients who are getting chemoradiotherapy. I think the one thing just to echo what Tony's saying, in terms of predictions, I think five years from now you'll be using triple drug therapy for mutation-positive lung cancer. I also I also think in two years, we'll all be using carbo-olimpta as our first-line regimen in lung cancer. I think it's going to replace yeah, carbotaxel. I, so yes, I, mean, I think when you look at the data, you look at the tolerability of the regimen. In fact, it might even happen as soon as the end of this year. October. In October. There's data at World Lung with cis-olimpta that's coming out. I think we're going to find that we'll be using this regimen. Dr. Hoffman? Yeah. The question I just have is on maintenance therapy. I know it's still early, but the gut feeling is continue until progression after a year. So, you know, now we're getting out to 12 months, 15 months, 22 months. Goodness knows what's going on. It's Star Trek. We're going to places no person has gone before. So the question is, do you do it? And is toxicity cumulative? Usually the way that we do it after one year, you're done. You know, mazel tov, here's your birthday cake, here's your candle, goodbye, no more Avastin. So it's just curious because Herceptin, we're doing pretty much the same thing until we get more understanding. Well, of that's in the time. adjuvant setting. We're yeah. talking about metastatic right. disease. I understand yeah. that, but I'm just saying, but in metastatic setting, in the adjuvant setting, we may be continuing it as well. We just don't know. I agree with your thought of what you're talking about here. Even though the studies were designed to continue it until progression, I've arbitrarily drawn a year point when I stop it. I mean, I do that. I just feel uncomfortable continuing something like that ad nauseum. And that's what I do. We need data. We need studies to define it. Maybe they'll be coming Guys, do you realize how different that discussion is than the other discussions we've had around this table? The idea that we're talking about people who have not yet progressed in a year? Oh, yes. Okay, that's two times what the progression should be in a patient population with metastatic lung cancer. So these are incredibly good problems to have. If that becomes our biggest issue is whether to give one versus two years of maintenance. And what do you continue? I keep going. I haven't stopped it a year, but there are so few patients who it becomes an issue of, you know. Dr. Menon, you seven have a yeah. dose may help you there. It might. If you do decide to use a second-line agent, that is, the disease progresses, and let's say you have two scenarios. One is you stop at the end of one year, and perhaps a year or so later, the disease progresses. Would you reintroduce Avastin? Or the second issue is if you continue the Avastin, and after a couple of years, the disease shows up, would you use it like Herceptin is? That is, would you continue the this has been a problem in breast cancer and trastuzum, as you said, for a long time. Tony, one thing that Dennis Slayman has always said is that he tends to do this more. Of course, we love to get the trials done and probably never will, but he tends to do this more in the patient who's had a good response. How do you approach the question? In terms I think of it's the- a good question. I think we need to, I'll tell you what I do right now, but we desperately need to not do what the breast doctors did. They have not studied this. They've just arbitrarily used Herceptin ad nauseum, sorry for using that term again, but that's what it is, with subsequent chemotherapies without data, even though they're progressing on Herceptin with the previous one. I don't think that's wise for us to do in lung cancer. That's one of the reasons I stop at one year because I think Avastin is useful, but I'm not going to continue Avastin if they're progressing on Avastin when I make alternative choices for chemotherapy. But I would, if they've been off Avastin in second-line treatment off study, I would probably at this point in time use a drug like Alimpta, for instance, or you could use other drugs like Taxotere in second-line setting with Avastin. I would do that personally. There's virtually no data. Paul? 
But one of the differences between the Avastin and Herceptin issue is that one of the proposed mechanisms of Avastin is to enhance chemo delivery of any chemo. And that's not what Herceptin does. So that if you enhance chemo delivery, second line, third line, fifth line, whatever, with Avastin, perhaps you'll be helping people there. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. I think studies need to show that, yeah. Joe. There's also, and I don't know, Tom, what your thoughts are in terms of this debate about, we see this in all the different tumors in terms of how Vastin's really working. A lot of that work's been done up in your area, Rakesh Jane and Chris Will, and trying to figure out what's going on with the Vastin. Obviously, an anti-angiogenic effect, but as Paul mentioned, also a, quote, normalization effect. What are your thoughts about So having spoken to Rakesh, and we're planning a trial like this in lung cancer with Rakesh to try to see whether or not some of the things that Chris Willett found in GI cancers we can find in lung cancer. This issue, Rakesh believes strongly that the benefit of, of Aston is from normalizing tumor blood vessels. And so by normalizing these tumor blood vessels and allowing increased delivery of chemotherapy, et cetera, you are going to improve outcome. And that's one of the reasons that he believes so strongly that there isn't a dose response and that 7.5 should be fine in terms of ability to normalize tumor blood vessels. I'm not entirely certain that we really know the answer to that yet. And I think the thing that's intriguing to me is when you look at some of these pure VEGF oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and that's the other big class of drugs that we're going to be evaluating soon. Many of them have single agent activities and actually can shrink tumors. And even Avastin, while it doesn't have an established response rate, it has been shown in some anecdotal circumstances to shrink lung cancers. It's not been well studied as a single agent, but shown to shrink lung cancers. And that becomes hard to think that that's just from tumor vascular normalization. So I would put this in the area of something which, you know, how long were we using aspirin before we figured out how aspirin works? Probably for hundreds of years. I think it will take a little longer before we truly understand how Avastin works. Of course, this has implications in terms of the adjuvant setting, trying to you know, predict or guess what might happen there, Tom. And, it, and also, I guess we ought to keep in mind, I think Lee Ellis brings this point out too, that it's kind of a biphasic or there are two different issues here, not to forget that it has an anti-angiogenic effect. Yes. I think they demonstrated that also in that rectal study. Yes, absolutely. Microvessel counts will change, and you can absolutely show clearly that there's difference in intratumoral pressure. Intratumoral pressure will change consistent with an antiangiogenic effect.